Cashflow Diary Podcast, Episode 83. Congratulations, you showed up. Give yourself a high five in celebration of your success. Welcome to the Cashflow Diary, where new and experienced investors come to take confident action towards their goals. Your host is a family man, a real estate entrepreneur, investor, coach, and instructor. As a master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow 101 game, He's inspired many to begin their journey into creating cash flow for themselves and their family. And now, here he is to offer you the tools required to earn the income desired. Your cash flow coach, Jay Massey. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Cash Flow Diary Podcast. I am your host, Jay Massey. Glad to be here today. Hopefully you are as well because I've got guests from all over the world. It's been fun traveling around the world, learning about new tools. Many of you know, if you've been following me, we've started uh, moving a lot of information online, building databases, learning how to do this thing and, and create even more streams of cash flow. And hopefully you're doing the same thing because that's the whole point. Uh, today, though, uh, we have an individual from what they typically call the land down under, and I know you're going to learn a lot because, remember, I've always said that real estate is important because everybody needs a place to live, work, play, or lay. And some of us like living, working, playing, and laying in other countries. So what about the idea of doing and or transacting real estate in other places? How does it work? That'll be a part of what we're talking about today. If this is your first time, however, joining us, one of the things that you're going to want to do, you want to go over to learninvestingnow.com. Get your free real estate investing course right now, learninvestingnow.com. And for those of you who's like, you know what, I'm tired of learning, I'm just ready to start earning, you go over to begininvestingnow.com so that you can go up and pick up one of your cash flowing assets sitting there ready, waiting for you. Now, as I said, Today's guest, I, I met him at InfusionCon. You're like, what's that? Well, InfusionSoft, the software, uh, has a group and a meeting, if you will, of their entire user base. And he flew all the way from Australia just to come hang out and learn more techniques. And that's a key thing that I want you to hear. When you're out there building your business, one of the things that you must decide to do is build the business and do whatever it takes to gain access to the individual's relationships and information necessary to go out there and build it and build it big. So what I want you to do, though, is that I want you to listen to how business is done elsewhere because I'm excited to learn about real estate in Australia. Hopefully you are, too. Welcome, if you will, Mr. Barry Gobert. Barry, you there? I am, Jay. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Evening to you and a good morning to me. Yeah, as I was getting to say, the whole time difference thing, it's like you just got up and we're after lunch and all this. What day is it? So are you a whole day ahead? Are you a day behind? Uh, we're a whole day ahead of you. It's a Wednesday here and you're on a Tuesday. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so, and, and, when, and when I came across there, I lost a day. Basically, I, I repeated a day, but when I came back, I lost the whole Sunday. So it was just gone. It, that's <laughs> That is so amazing, and that speaks to, to the commitment. Now, one of the things that I often say to people is that I believe that today's entrepreneurs is like yesterday's superheroes. So in, in the U.S., we have superheroes like Superman and Batman and, and you know Wonder Woman, etc. 
And I'm assuming Australia has superheroes too. I mean, I've never read an Australian comic book, but <laughs> <laughs> look, we've been a big follower of Superman. And uh, look, I can tell you, my son at 18 is uh, a, an avid follower of Superman and Batman and all those sorts of things. So look, yeah, we're we're adaptive over here. So. <laughs> so, but and but each of those superheroes, they have what I like to call an origin story of how they started. They didn't wake up one day. Peter Parker had to get bit by a spider, and then he became Spider-Man. You know, he he was doing something completely different, and he made a decision to then become the superhero. So one of the first questions I like to ask everybody is, what? how did you become the, the, the person that you are today in business? And, you know, for the sake of everyone listening, tell us a little bit about what you do, services that you provide. Uh, but at the same time, what what switch changed your mind into saying, you know what, I want to be a small business owner. I want to make this thing happen. That That's a very good question. Um, look, um, I've, I've been in business now 13 years um, and a, a bit of background. Um, banking here in Australia is very, very regulated. Um, and big four banks are predominant in a probably control 90% of the marketplace. The other 10% is therefore shared amongst a whole bunch uh, of mid-tier banks, credit unions, and what we call a non-bank lender. I'm one of the non-bank lenders, so I sort of work in that a 1% to 2% market share space, which I share with probably about 30 of us in total around Australia. Now, um, I worked for a, um, a good 20 years in major banks, and... Whilst I enjoyed it and I learnt a lot, um, I always felt that there was um, better that could be done, better service, uh, better systems, better people approach. Um, I always felt the bank I was working for, who should remain nameless, was always very good at the honeymoon, um, sweet talk you like crazy, make wonderful lots and lots of uh, inviting offers, but were pretty lousy at the marriage because when they got you on board, you became a number. Um, So that encouraged me to think, what can I do to make a difference? And could I add value to those customers out there in Australia by offering a small non-bank lending service, which is far more personalized? Um, And therefore, we started our business back in 2001. Uh, We originally called ourselves another name, Home Loan Services, but we changed our brand across to Iden. Um, mainly a combination of two reasons. One, we wanted to be more wholesale, so we were dealing B2B, business um, to business. We distribute through Australia through, there's about 10,000 in Australia accredited mortgage broker licenses, 10,000 and that's it around the country, but we're only 25 million, so it's not a big, big country. Um, but um, small comparative to you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I, I, I go to Phoenix and there's this place there that's 4.9 million people and it's the middle of a desert. I'm thinking, my God, this is amazing. Yeah, right, right. In LA, in LA and Orange County combined, I think the last count was somewhere around, I want to say nine, if it, it's somewhere between nine and 10 million people. And I think they're all on our freeway at the same time. So, yeah, we, we got a yeah. lot of people. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and um, we, we're building freeways here, but sadly, they still have this habit of building two lanes each way. So uh, they, they become crushed really, really quickly. We're, we're expanding most of our twos to threes. And I'm thinking, why don't I just make them like the US do? Make them four or five or six. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we got that. And they're still full, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But look, we, we really had a passion to, to make a difference, and I felt we did really take that on board, um, at least with us uh, 
um, you can actually speak to the managing director of the company and you actually, as a customer, uh, whereas with a big four bank, you've got no chance of doing that. Um, we have a very personal person, people-to-people uh, -people approach in terms of the way we're processing. We're dealing with our mortgage brokers who entrust um, their customers to us, but we engage very closely with our mortgage brokers and therefore also with their customers. But we also respect the mortgage brokers that is their customers, whereas if a mortgage broker takes it to a big bank, a big bank has many other points of contact of distribution. So it's not only that you know something like a Commonwealth Bank has got bank branches everywhere, they actually have their own loan writers internally as well, their own bank branch staff internally, and their own mobile loan writers that go out on the road. Wow. Um, they sell through the internet. Um, so they're selling in many, many ways before they even think about a mortgage broker. And a mortgage broker represents around 25% of their sales. For us, it's like it's 99% of our sales. So we're far more dedicated to that channel. Um, but notwithstanding, um, we have to swim up the stream because the big flood of money is coming downstream from the big four banks. And sometimes they all make credit decisions that we just look aghast at, but you know, they can do that. Um, and you know, we're very regulated, all of us as lenders, as to what we can do. We have never, ever done a loan without doing a valuation report. So we get a proper value go out to inspect the property to make sure it does stack up. And that's extremely relevant, particularly for investors when they're buying an investment property, because sometimes when you buy an investment property, whilst you should be making a decision about your investment property with your head, how many times do people think by the heart and say, <laughs> oh, this looks beautiful. I'd love to have this as an investment property. Right. It's, a, it's a commercial decision. And if they, if they go out and see this by the heart, they think it's worth 380000 but the head says, actually, no, it's probably only worth three fifty. But then they get a contract that says, you've got to buy it, it's three eighty. But the value comes in and says, actually, no, it's only worth three fifty. We can save the investor money because we then tell them, well, look, it is only three fifty. If you really want to spend an extra thirty grand, that's fine, but we can only lend you against the three fifty purchase price. So we're protecting the investor by educating them by saying this is a proper written sworn valuation. That doesn't mean to say the values don't get it wrong from time to time and you know, we do have argy-bargy on occasions when we see potential errors, we will enlighten the valuers but valuers um, are, are, are by their nature a little bit conservative but I actually take that as a positive thing because in all honesty, you do want to buy at the right price. That's where you lock in a good value investment from the day you purchase. The other thing you have to live with in Australia, we have massive stamp duty um, imposts on acquisitions. So you, when you buy investment properties here, um, and the average property I can tell you now in, in Sydney, we've got a, um, just a bit of background, just recent times, we, we're actually having a good kick in the property market over here in Australia. Um, average price in Sydney is running around about $630,000 now for a home. Wow. Uh, and the clearance rates and auctions uh, about two years ago was running at about 50%, but it's now running at around about 80%. So when they put a property up to market, it's a very, very strong market for, for buyers. So it's probably a bit of a vendor's market. They're starting now to get um, a maximum extraction of, uh, of money. Um, you're more and more hearing of um, properties going above the reserve price. They put it on the market for 800,000 with a reserve um, at 800, and it sells for 810 or 850 or 900,000 dollars or something like that. 
Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, so let me let me ask you this question, because I, I'm hearing some um, some fundamental operational differences between the way things are done in the U.S. So, first of all, so that I'm clear and so that everyone else is clear, when you say valuation report, would that that's similar to it sounds like it's similar to what we call an appraisal, but not an inspection. Are those two separate or is that the same person? No, no. Um, an appraisal we would uh, uh, determine as being a real estate agent who would look at your property and appraise it and give you their estimated based on some analysis as to what they think the property's worth. It can have some science about it, appraisals, but an appraisal is not something that a bank will lend or us as a lender will lend against. Okay. A valuation report has much more science in it, much more rigor about it, has much more comparable sales. And they will say, this property is worth $780,000 or $782,000. But we will then lend against that up to 80% without any mortgage insurance, wow. painlessly. Okay, An appraisal from a real estate agent, they could be touting for business. They want to sell your property. And they'll say, well, look, we, we actually think it's worth about $850,000. And of course, as a vendor, you're saying, oh, I would like more. So I will take that appraisal and I will give you the listing. But we don't take appraisals from real estate agents into account. So formal valuation, it does cost $385 to get done. It is a purchaser's expense cost. Sure. Um, now, we do kind of build it into our costs and expenses associated with doing a loan. But that gives us absolute clarity of what is the, um, the, the value of the property at that point in time. Um, and we've never, ever done a loan without having a valuation report. Even if we're on an $800,000 property, we're lending $100,000, tiny, tiny loan ratio, we would still do a valuation report. Wow. Uh, and you said they were sworn. So is this? So what if the, is the in this particular case is the person doing the valuation report held to some sort of liability if they get the number wrong you're absolutely right if they get that number wrong and it actually happened to us pre gfc um, we had a property which sold a penthouse for a close to nine hundred thousand dollars um, the valuer valued it at the purchase price there was a bit of a boom taking place Several years later, it, it, um, uh, a mortgagee in possession, we had to resell it. I think we sold it for $480,000. Wow. There was a significant loss in that. What had happened is he compared it with properties on the other side of the major freeway, which had views. Oh. And the property that hadn't got the views was not worth that much more. So there was a 250000 discrepancy. Us as a funder had used a balance sheet lender behind the scenes. The balance sheet lender sued the valuer for the loss. No. So the valuer had to use his professional indemnity insurance to pay up. Wow. Yep. So, yep, valuers are sworn to get it right or else. I don't want that position. Oh, oh my goodness. That's amazing. We we have no such thing as you can tell. So that is, I'm like, wow, that would totally drop the values in so many marketplaces simply because people would be they'd be they would be afraid to give a high number. You don't want to give a high number in that particular case unless you are absolutely sure. Correct. But you're saying right now you're going through you called it a kick in the, the in the market. So 
right now the the valuers are, are saying so basically whatever the valuer says goes that's what i'm hearing pretty much you're right um and it's much more critical when you go above 80 percent because in australia we have what we call two mortgage insurers mortgage insurers are and this is government regulation the government simply says banks and lenders you can lend up to 80 percent and it's on your balance sheet and your risk anything above 80 percent you must um uh what they call add value to the loan amount by a mortgage insurance bundle. That means you actually pay for an insurance policy which takes the risk away for those lenders that are lending more than 80%. Now, we've been able to go as high as 95% against the property value with that mortgage insurance. But the mortgage insurance at around about 90% is 1%. At 95%, it's 2% of the loan amount. So it's a very significant one-off mortgage insurance, which is has a life value of about four years. Wow. And there's, there's no rebate. The borrower pays for this. Wow. Um, so it's quite an expense associated with making that happen. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and then you mentioned about, uh, and just for everyone's sake, when you say vendor, you for we would say seller. Uh, Sell, it, yes. Yeah, yeah. I just want everybody to make sure that they follow along. And then you said stamp duty. Uh, but before we get to that, you said clearance rate. It sounds like when you put up a, a, a property for sale, there's an. it sounds like there's an auction process more than a, a direct sale process. Is that accurate? That is an accurate um, situation, and it is different around Australia. In Sydney, it's typical that people put properties to auction, which means it goes under the hammer on the day at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning or they have sessions in, in auction rooms and they might sell off about you know, 30 or 40 properties and everyone crowds into a room of you know, 1,000 people and bids going left, right and center. Um, so auctions are a, a predominant way in Sydney. Where I'm from, Perth, on the other side of the country, they don't do auctions anywhere near as much except for really exclusive property where there's a huge demand for that particular property. Normally, it's just by offer and acceptance, and that means you list the property, you put it open for inspections on selected days, and you say, well, they're asking price on this property is $600,000. Would you like to make an offer? They then say, yes, I'll make an offer, and here's my contract to offer an acceptance for $580,000, and the seller says, no, I want – let's go in between. I want five ninety. They agree in the contract. It's done. Wow. Um, and it's a much slower pace in that regards. But what happens at an auction, you'll end up with four or five bidders and all of them saying, no, I want that property. So they start outbidding each other. Right. And therefore, 590 becomes 595, 600, 605. Do I hear 610? Do I hear 615, 620? Sold, 620,000. And that's what the auctioneers hope to get is more as a consequence of people bidding against each other okay so in that situation when okay it goes for 620 at the auction but the valuer said it was only worth 580 now what oh isn't that a good one (laughs) such a good question you know what that's where you're damned because (laughs) you have to be so careful if you are going to an auction purchase as a potential buyer in australia you want to get a pre-approval so that you know that you can get a loan approved for a certain amount. And if you see a particular property, it's on the market for 600000 there is parts of you that says it would be nice to get a valuation to know what it is worth, but you're actually at, at a risk. 
If you send in a value before the auction and the valuer then has to guess what happens on the auction day, okay, he might say it's only worth 580000 Well, guess what? I'm locked in to lending against the purchase price of 580. If and if it sell, if it sold for 620, that other 40,000 I have to ignore. Wow. So it is really a a real risk for a purchaser in those circumstances because somebody else turns up on the day and they want it and they heartfelt want it because they want to live in the home and you're <laughs> right. thinking about an investment property, you're outbid um, by $40,000 to what really it is worth. Whereas I would take an approach of saying, okay, let's do a pre-approval on a notional purchase price but not pick a property. Let's say you're going to buy and uh, purchase something for six hundred thousand. Do you have the deposit? Do you have the cost expenses to complete the transaction? We'll give you a pre-approval for five fifty as a loan amount. Then let's find the property. Then they know that they can borrow five fifty against six hundred. And then those circumstances, I might have said I'm lending you at say ninety percent, which would be five forty. I'm lending you ninety percent, and I think. At five forty, I might be able to lend you another ten or twenty thousand dollars. If they then purchase it at auction at six twenty, I can potentially then say I'll send the value in after it. Guess what typically happens then? The value will after the event say, oh, okay, it sold at auction, free market conditions, open arms, and no, you know, brother to sister sale taking place here. It was open market. Yes, it's worth six twenty. I will value it I at six twenty. Then I can use the 620 valuation report rather than the pre-valuation report of 580. And then I simply adjust my loan amount up to 90% of the 620. Everyone's happy. So getting a valuation report before purchasing is always a risk. However, if you've got an offer and acceptance situation and there's no auction, yeah. and somebody says, my home's worth 600000 well, that's because the real estate agent appraiser has said <laughs> it's worth six hundred. <laughs> Then it's a little different. You actually do want to know what a valuer thinks it's worth. And if he says it's only worth 580, guess what? You're offering acceptance. You're going to say, I'll probably start at 560. Right. Try to get the 600 down to in between. If he comes down to 590, I might go to 570. I'm thinking of capping my offer at 580. Okay. Now, hopefully as you're listening to this, you're realizing a couple of things. Just because real estate is on the other side of the planet, it still works very similarly to how it does in your own backyard. That's one of the things that I, I want to drive home with a number of you know points made throughout this particular episode is just to understand the systems work all across the planet. So learning this skill is very valuable, no matter where you live, so long as you live near people, that is. So uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of as we go through the updates is that this weekend... For those of you who have purchased the book or purchased any particular product from us, you are going to be receiving a special invite. We're doing what we're calling a VIP day. So for all of you, uh, what we're doing is we're going to spend four hours or I'm going to spend four hours with you live uh, this weekend on Saturday. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you every lead generation technique I know. All of them. Done. In four hours. Uh, you're going to get every lead generation technique I know. Now, some of the things to understand is if you know and remember how we got started in business, I didn't start with a huge ad budget. So if your ad budget is zero, this is definitely something you would want to make sure that you are at. And again, it's only going to be for those of you who have already 
uh, you know, purchase the ebook or something from uh, the company. And we're, we're just going to do our best to, to help you take the next step and, and come up with a way to generate. And here's the promise so that you generate more leads than you have time to actually deal with. Uh, and there's a reason I say more leads than you have time to deal with, because it'll force you to develop bigger, better systems on how to follow up, et cetera, which begins to grow the business. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing this weekend. If you haven't or don't receive an email and you've definitely purchased something from us, please make sure that you send an email to us so that way we know. Um, however, uh, an easy way to fix that to make sure you're like, hey, I want to be a part of this Um Feel free to just go get the audiobook, or, or sorry, you can pre-order the audiobook. I was going to say go get the ebook or go get the physical copy of the book, and boom, now you're you'll be there, or you know, participate in some of uh, the the courses, uh, either the wholesaling or, and soon uh, we'll have uh, the raising private capital, and you guys will be out there being able to do that as well. If you're looking for a link to do that, that's cashflowdiary.com forward slash book b o o k. Or uh, you can send a text message with the keyword to uh, book, B-O-O-K, to 949-682-3565. Don't want to take up too much more of your time. Let's get back to the interview. Right, right. Wow, that's awesome. I Well, I like the fact that it's auction because in, the, in that auction situation, if you're the vendor, you, you know, you got a shot at something that's amazing. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like that situation. Because you could go out there and make it really, really pretty. Now, is that the same for commercial property as well? So commercial property goes through that same process? They do. They do. Um, commercial, has uh, there's an awful lot of commercial uh, through auction sales. Um, where you don't see them in auction sales, you typically see it's a commercial property that's empty. And a, an empty commercial property is a little bit harder to sell because you don't have cash flow from the property. And the cash flow from a, a long-term lease three or four or five year lease or a long term that's a five by five by five even um, really adds incredible value to the commercial property. If it's empty, it is then up to the purchaser to go and find a tenant because you need that cash flow. But as a consequence, it doesn't have as much attraction in the marketplace. So typically they don't auction empty properties unless it's an an absolutely incredibly fantastic location. Uh. Okay. Absolute unique location. Like you, to, you choose any McDonald's restaurant, any in the world, it's in a prime location, right. because they're in the property business, not selling hamburgers. Right. Well, they don't make a good one either, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Now they and, always have prize locations, though. That, indeed, indeed. I agreed. Agreed. So when you were talking about clearance rate, you're saying what? What? Explain a little bit of, about what clearance rate was, because. I think I know, but I want to hear from you what it is. Okay. When properties come to market, and if you're an avid, interested person in property, you're always trying to see what's happening in the marketplace. And the marketplace says every weekend there's 3,000 properties up for sale. If only half of them are getting cleared each weekend, oh, then wow. it's, it, it's there's not a strong buy indication in the marketplace. Got it. And so therefore, the vendors and the sellers have to be a little bit more uh, meet the market, Okay maybe drop their price a little bit. So it might be a buyer's market. But if you've got the current situation where 80% of what is put in the market is snapped up at auctions and even exceeding the pre-reserved price, then all of a sudden uh, the sellers are having a field date because they're asking a bit more and the buyers are having to pay a little bit more and bid fiercely at auctions 
because there are so many other bidders there that are standing side by shoulder to shoulder with them and outbidding each other. Wow. So you get the bidding wars. Now, really, um, as an investor, you have to be just a little bit more um, secure in yourself to make sure that if you think it's only worth 580 don't go out there and buy it at 620 because someone else is prepared to pay an extra $40,000. The reality is you've got to make a commercial decision here for what is the right price for your acquisition for yourself. Absolutely. Now, I, and, and I love that because that speaks to something that I always uh, tell people is that every asset has a minimum of three values depending on how you're going to use it. There's the use value, there's the investment value, and then there's the speculative value. Speculative being, you know, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to fix it up and then resell it. Uh, the yes. use value being I'm going to live there, so I'll pay a certain price. And then the investment value, I'll pay a certain price, but relative to the rent. So that brings up the, the, the killer question, at least in my world, is are, are rents keeping up with this this pricing or, or is that is that completely, you know, uh, out of ratio as well? Oh, look, that's a really, really good question. What happened at GFC, and it's a cyclical thing. Um, when GFC hit, a lot of people stopped buying property, and all of a sudden people were actually paying off debt. So property clearance rates were getting down to around about 40%. So really the, the vendors and sellers had to drop prices. But what then happened is because not many investors were purchasing property and putting them, listing them for and tenants to be in there, that the rents went through the roof. So they climbed like crazy. So, but pre-GFC, you got to say the rent yield uh, for residential property was probably be languishing around about three, three and a half percent, which is really quite low. For commercial properties, probably running it around about six, seven, eight percent, which also quite low. But what happened in GFC when there was not much uh, property in the market? All of a sudden, all these young kids that would normally move out of home and uh, move into rental property, more and more of them deferred even longer and stayed home with <laughs> mum and dad. Yeah. And therefore, the rent started going through the roof. And so you had yields then that started to climb through to 5 and 6% on residential properties, on cash flow. Um, and that's gross cash flow before your expenses of you know, rates and, and water and so on. Um, now, what's happened subsequently as those rents have steadied, now the property prices are going back up again, those yields are starting to wash through down to a lower level again. So um, yes, the yields are probably be back down to about four and a half, five, um, even heading south further than that, because the capital value of the acquisitions moved up. And that calculation is based upon a year's worth of rent. So, so, so yes. walk me through the, the, the way you're doing the math. If I'm interpreting it correctly, we're taking a year's worth of gross rent divided by the purchase price. 100% correct. Okay, got it. All right, then that's, wow, I, I hear you completely, I, and I love that. And just for everyone's benefit, I think when you keep saying GFC, you mean global financial crisis. I do. Okay. Yes, I do. Excellent. Yes, just GFC hit everybody. Yes. <laughs> so it wasn't just the U.S. This is, I mean, and that's the interesting thing is how many things are the same, even though we live on literally opposite sides of the world. Uh, I definitely, uh, I, I love that. I love how much of this just translates. Now, when you say stamp duty, uh, I'm, a, we would, I'm assuming that's the same thing as like a transfer tax of some kind when you purchase. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Don't we love our taxes? No. <laughs> <clears throat> Over here, um, each uh, state government has their own stamp duty and state tax. 
and uh, the for the benefit of putting your name on the title, <laughs> the government will charge you a stamp duty tax. And it is quite significant. On a million-dollar property, you are talking close to $80,000. It is really, really quite expensive. So it's it's an extortionate cost. Oh, my gosh. And you have no appreciation. You, you guys have got lucky. You can flip properties painlessly. Over here, when you purchase a property, even a $500,000 property, you're talking about thirty grand. Wow. So it is um, – now – what they have been doing here more recently for up to half a million dollars for brand new first home buyers, the state governments have been saying, we will waive that for you. So that is a significant saving for first home buyers getting into their very first home wow. um, as an incentive to get people into the marketplace. Um, but um, otherwise, if you're an investor, you are going to be, I mean, it's okay, you can write it off. It's and. The tax rules here are quite different to the U.S., um, but um, you are—I mean, you know, on a four hundred thousand dollar property, you're still probably looking at um, around about twenty grand in stamp duty. So it's—it's it's not insignificant, and it's a significant cost associated with purchasing a property. What, what's interesting to me, though, is even with this, uh, what you call extortionate cost of stamp duty, you're still having a price increase. You're, you're still oh, yeah. it's still uh, a vendor's market pricing is still going up so I, I have to ask why what what is driving that interest in your opinion why is the market so hot over there right now um look one of the things that have been distinctively different between Australia and the US is the supply of new housing um, the Sydney Basin has an interesting characteristics that we're surrounded by the Blue Mountains and we have a long long wide strip you might say LA-like, um, that goes up yeah. and down the coast. But it's bounded by mountains um, uh, to the west, and it wraps around to our south. So it kind of creates this basin. Um, and heading north, there's a big waterway, so that breaks it as well. So it's sort of restrictive. And we don't have rapid transport. So it is a situation where as you're on the fringe, it can take you an hour and a half to drive to CBD because of the nature of traffic and transport opportunities is limited, even by train, a fast train as we call it. Um, it's not super fast, but it still gets you there reasonably <laughs> fast with less stops, um, takes you an hour. So um, what has happened over the last probably six or seven years, population growth through birth and through immigration has grown and swelled you know, all the capital cities, and, and Australia has typically been the same in this regards. But there has not been a supply of new housing apartments or individual houses to meet that demand from immigration and natural birth and growth. So what we've had is a notional undersupply of housing construction in Australia. And they have counted this in the thousands, and sometimes there's been like 20,000 home building construction under supply per year. Wow. Now, that has been our situation versus where you're in the U.S. have had an oversupply, more houses than there's been demand for. So, therefore, you've had a lot of vacancy as a consequence. We don't have as much vacancy in Australia. There's not too many empty homes floating around because they've pretty much have filled up. And you have many, many people now doing joint venture acquisitions where you might buy a four-bedroom house on a 50-50 basis, so you've got two bedrooms each if you like. But 
um, not enough construction took place. So as a consequence, there is a bit of a pent-up demand for housing here in Australia. Um, that has meant that the market has been grabbing what there is. That's one aspect. The other aspect is in people in places like Sydney, where inner city or inner areas um, are already built up. So they're either going to have to knock down, rebuild to do apartments, and there's a little bit of that taking place, or people say, to heck with commuting an hour and a half. I'd rather live in a city closer to where I work, and therefore there's demand for closer in living areas. So you do have no different to anywhere um, when you have a 10-kilometer radius. You say if you are working the CBD, 10-kilometer zone is more valuable than a 20-kilometer zone. So it is then the, the district um, distance away from the CBD. And there's so many more services within those you know, areas. You have regional sort of CBDs almost, if you like, um, where there's many, many, many services, shopping centers and availability of services like medicals and hospitals. People will live closer to that, um, universities and, and the like. When you get it further, further out, land gets cheaper, but the cost of developing blocks of land um, has been made quite onerous for developers through state government taxes and charges, <laughs> etc. There's that again. And you that know, again. what I love about this is that it's, and this is what I tell um, uh, people all the time, is that real estate is a people business. It's about people. Find out what the people want. Don't look for property. Look for problems. Solve those problems. The interesting thing that you bring up that I hope people listening, especially those of you listening in the U.S., is he, he's talking about what happens when you're not constructing enough. This is what eventually happens. You have a housing shortage. And we in the U.S. haven't been constructing enough for our population, which is a whole lot of people. At this moment, yes, we in some jurisdictions, we have vacancy issues. Others, we have the issue where it's being taken off the market very, very fast, but we're still not constructing there's not enough new construction going on to keep up with the with the uh, consumption and absorption ratios across many different marketplaces so we're headed for a situation similar to what you're experiencing which is i find very very interesting to hear um on the other hand you said cbd and for everybody cbd means Central Business District. Excellent. Uh, that way we can all be on the same page, which is, for all intents and purposes, what I'm gathering would be what we call downtown. Correct. Yeah. Downtown. So, and, and of course, you want to live where you, you want to live near to where you work. You don't want to spend 12 hours on the freeway. Um, and I, I'm just kind of curious. If they're collecting so much money from the stamp duty, they should be able to have three and four lane highways. You are so right, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because that's a lot of money for, for stamp duty. Uh, and I, I don't know what they're doing with it, but man, that's amazing. Oh, uh, my, they're having pretty, pretty big parties. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. No, so I'm assuming then there's not a, is there a really big market for people who can, who fix and flip? Does anyone like do that as a really big business over there? Because that seems like that would be a deterrent. Uh, look, it is a bit of a deterrent, but the truth be known, it isn't because it's just the way it is. So you kind of get used to it. What tends to happen, uh, and there is an active renovation marketplace, and there's quite a few investors that do focus on that. And I'll tell you one story. I, I went to, uh, I know that's Sheree Barber. She's, um, we have these lifestyle shows on TV from time to time, and they, they had this block. They call it a block, which there was a renovation block. And they had, I think, a, a, a block of eight apartments that each contestant was to renovate 
and they would auction at the end of it. And whoever achieved the highest price won, and they were going to win $100,000 plus, you know, all that sort of stuff, and they had a reserve price. But one of the winners of this went into this renovation as a business. They found that they were very good at renovating property. They had a good um, style about them. They had good thought processes about using space and displaying something and portraying it that would attract buyers when they had it open for inspection. So they had all of that together. They, they then chose a particular suburb, which was very, very smart. Her approach was, I need to know what my purchase price better than a valuer. So I have to know exactly what's on the market in this particular location. So her strategy was, I'm going to choose a suburb. And I'll choose my suburb firstly on a basis that is, there is a lot of turnover there's opportunity for renovations and I don't and I will become an expert in a small confined area than rather than trying to find 10 suburbs and learn about all of them I this is a suburb I know that has demand and pent up demand she then said okay I know I can do a renovation and there's either cosmetic or a structural renovation cosmetic was she's not going to change any of the walls she didn't need any council approval she can paint, she can carpet, she can um, rip out a bathroom, do the redo the bathroom, but in the same space, rip out the kitchen, do the kitchen in the same space. That's a cosmetic, and she can do that for some maybe 100000 She knows that then if she produces a renovation like that, she might make a $100,000 profit. So then she works out, if I buy this property for a million and I spend a hundred, and I can then have 1.1 and I can make 200,000, 100 to cover my cost, and 100 to make my profit, and I can do that in a space of three months, that's worth my while. So she has that approach. She has another approach, which is structural. She says, I know this property is under, um, you talked about it before, it's underinvested or it's undercapitalized to its location. Yeah. But here's a tiny little three bedroom home. Either side, there are five-bedroom, three-bathroom homes with double garages. I want that tiny little three-bedroom home, the worst house in the street. Right. I'm going to fully renovate it, but this time I'm going to do a structural renovation, and I have to go time two, three months to get a council approval. I'm going to knock down the back wall. I'm going to extend it out five, six meters, 20 feet in your language, um, add on extra bedrooms, extra bathrooms. But I'm going to spend maybe three to $400,000 this time. But this time, I know the property that I'm buying is comparable to the loans properties on either side that are worth $2 million. If I can buy this property for a million dollars and spend $400,000 renovating it, doing a structure renovation, and sell it for $2 million, I'll make good profit. So she looks for the million-dollar gems to do the flipping, as you call it, wow. because she will do – and her approach is she only does three a year. Uh, yeah. She looks three a year. She goes to every single home open for inspection in that suburb every single time. She knows. And she tries to buy before it gets listed in the real estate agency magazines or online. Right. She will make an offer. She will be in close contact with the, the real estate agents who say, I'm about to list this property. Hey, I want to see it. Right. She goes around. So she tries to snare the property before it even gets listed. <laughs> I love this because the same thing is true. Literally today I was offered. Uh, uh, there's a there's a group of apartment buildings, um, about six, seven hundred units that I would they contacted me and said, oh, look, we want to let you know before they go to market. They're coming. We're going to give you first shot at it before we put it out there on our MLS and, and let everybody else know. So I I'm very comforted to know that that same process works 
all the way, all the way over there. It's all about relationship, guys. I am so excited to hear how similar it is. Our business, regardless of location, functions very, very similarly, no matter what. It's all about your connections. You are then really connected with uh, real estate agents who know what you're about and what you're looking for. And you know what? She actually mud maps it for him. She tells the real estate agents, here's my description of a property I'm looking for. She goes, she knows every single real estate in her suburb very, very well. First name basis, mobile contacts on your mobile phone, everything. <laughs> when a sniff of a listing comes up, she knows about it before it even hits the internet. That's awesome. I love this. I definitely uh, appreciate the time that you've been able to invest uh, with us to help us understand that, you know, real estate is, you know, it's it's that unifying thing across many different continents and countries. And I definitely appreciate it. What would you say to that person who's beginning? You know, they're looking to begin their real estate portfolio. So if, if I was in Australia and I'm ready to begin or if I'm just looking to become that new investor, what are some of those and, and most important things that you would give that person as they're looking to build cash flow uh, for their portfolio? Um, I, well, you just actually said it there. When you're looking as an investor, you've got to look with the head, not the heart. You are buying a business. Think of your property as a small business, <clears throat> okay? You want to make sure that it's in a great location and it's going to be easy tenantable. You want to be able to flip a tenant if you need to. And if you have a vacancy, you want to be able to put it back into cash flow positive real quickly. So you want it to present really, really well. And it can be simple cosmetic stuff that does do that. <clears throat> so you want to buy well. You want to buy in a good location, which is close to transports, close to shopping centers. And it's going to be attractive to tenants. And you are looking to maximize your rent. Okay. So you are going to do some cosmetics. You want it to present really, really well because you want a really good quality tenant as well. You don't want your property to look cheap and therefore attract the wrong <laughs> lower income stream for you. So present the property well. Make it look homely. Make it look like a tenant's going to walk in there and they're going to say, oh, I'd love to live here. I'm going to pay an extra 20 bucks a week rent to this place. Did you say 20 uh, bucks a week? Yeah, more. Oh, wow. Do you guys charge per week? <laughs> We, 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 over here, we talk about it weekly, yes. So, <laughs> oh, I love it. So if, you, if you've got your property in the market and you're saying, oh, I want $400 a week rent for this property, what you're trying to achieve is 420 because you want more positive cash flow. It's your business. You want to maximize it. Wow. So, so And if it means that you have to you know, re, you know, get rid of the wallpaper and do a new coat of paint, put fresh carpet in, put in an air conditioner, you know what? You could spend um, – $800 on an air conditioner, um, a wall-mounted ductor system, but it could give you $50 a week extra rent. Before you know it, your air conditioner as a capital investment from your point of view is paid off within six months, but you've got extra $50 a week that goes on for several years. Right. So it's a positive cash flow situation. So the right investment in the cosmetic approaches of a property is a good thing, but choose your location wisely. But if you're choosing a, a particular suburb, you need to know that suburb inside out. Don't buy in a whim. Use your head because you are now a, an investor. Don't say emotionally, oh, I think I'd like to live here. That's the <laughs> wrong thing to do. Oh, I love it. Definitely. I love it. I love how similar it is. I'm glad to hear that your investors, uh, new investors, make the same mistakes that we do. They're like, oh, this one's pretty, so 
clearly this is the one for me. Uh, I definitely appreciate the time. I'm glad uh, that you made it back safely from Phoenix in that long flight. Uh, I And again, as always, if there's anything that we can do stateside to help you, please let us know. Uh, because this has been a great time invested here. Thank you very much. You're most welcome, Jay. Pleasure chatting to you. All right, everyone. Now you know what it's time to do. It's time for you to go out there and move at the speed of instruction. You have heard some of the same lessons all the time, all the way from the other side of the planet. What's cool is now that that should serve as validation. Validation that what you're doing is moving yourself into the correct direction to get your cash flow started. It has been a great time talking to you today, and I look forward to talking to all of you again one more time. And until next time. Thank you for investing your time with Jay Massey and the Cash Flow Diary. When you have a moment, please visit iTunes and leave a positive comment about the show. And go now to our website, CashflowDiary.com, to take advantage of our free business building course, Cashflow Foundation. Gain the knowledge, understanding, and skill that will teach you how to never need a job again. Until next time. Until next time. Until next time.